And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet, been, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it was, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as most of you know, um, this past year I have been going over uh, the first uh, epistle of John. Uh, it's been a great time being in, in this epistle and bringing uh, the message to you uh, whenever I'm up here preaching to you, to you lovely people. Um, this might be the last message I preach uh, on this epistle because uh, a couple weeks back some of the men got together with Pastor Chuck and we went over uh, 2020 schedule as far as preaching and what we're going to be bringing to you this upcoming year. Uh, so I don't think um, the letter of John uh, is going to be in there, so I'm going to probably finish today with this last sermon on this epistle. I might be able to teach it on a Sunday school or, or a home study, but um, yeah, that's where I'm at with the epistle. So uh, just a quick reminder or a quick refresher for those of you who um, may be new. Uh, the epistle of John, written by the original uh, one of the original apostles, uh, John the Beloved. Uh, he's writing to a group of Christians. This is late in the first century, and uh, they have been bothered by a sect known as the Gnostics who, have been, who infiltrated the church and began teaching uh, false doctrines. So it started causing some confusion, some doubt uh, to the true believers who were uh, around in John's day. Now for the remainder of this letter, John is going to use a writing technique referred to as recapitulation. You know, my daughter is probably laughing because I cannot say that word. (laughs) Recapitulation. Recapitulation? It's simply a technique that John uses to reiterate what he's been saying um, 
previously, similar to what he did in, when he wrote the book of Revelation. When he wrote the book of Revelation, he talks about seven seals, and then a couple of chapters later, he talks about seven trumpets, and then he goes on to the seven bulls, which is all talking basically about the same thing, just from different angles, um, as Doc or, uh, Chuck had preached earlier in the year. So what he's doing, what he's about to do now, uh, he's given the, his audience three tests by which they can assure themselves of their salvation. Uh, the first test that he gave them was the test of obedience. And he said that if you know, or if you claim to know him, meaning God or Jesus, then you ought to walk in obedience to his word. If you don't obey his word, then uh, more than likely you're not a true follower, a true believer. The second test that he gave his audience was the test of love. Uh, if you are a true Christian, you will love your brother. Second part to that was you will not love the world. And then the third test that he gave uh, his audience, which is the last time I preached, was the doctrine or the uh, test of uh, the doctrine, particularly the doctrine of Christology. Uh, you have to know the right Jesus in order to be the right, right Jesus, the biblical Jesus, to know that you are truly a follower of Christ. A lot of people believe in Jesus. A lot of other religions believe in Jesus, but it's not the biblical Jesus that we know in the scriptures. Uh, so those are the three tests by which his audience can assure themselves that they, in fact, are true Christians. So now what he's going to do is he's going to reiterate, he's going to go back to the first test that he gave him, the doctor, or the test of obedience, without actually using the word obedience. Um, so, in the sermon, uh, I don't have any bullet points or any stuff like that, but I do have two questions um, that I want you to seriously ponder and consider um, as we go along. First question is, what is the greatest privilege that you yourself have on earth? Think about that for a moment. Is it maybe the job that you have, the company that you work for, maybe the school you attend? Uh, for some of us, our greatest privilege is maybe being a parent, maybe even a grandparent. Uh, think about that for a moment. What is the greatest privilege that you have here on earth? John wants us to consider that the greatest privilege on earth is being called a child of God. Think about that for a moment. Sometimes we call ourselves children of God, but we just kind of say it in passing, but we really don't consider what that really means. Being called a, children, a child of God really and truly is uh, the highest privilege that we can consider or that we have here on earth. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Um, some translations, instead of see, it says behold. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. So John really wants us to stop and think, about our status as children of God. Not everyone on this earth has that privilege to be called children of God. Many uh, religions teach otherwise. They teach that everyone who's on this earth running around uh, is a child of God. I kind of touched on that last week, where, when I, or not last week, but the last time I preached when I said uh, that, yes, every human being on this earth was created by God, and we're all created in his image, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are children of God. In his uh, gospel, the gospel of John, uh, in the first chapter, John says, He, meaning Jesus, came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, will of the flesh, nor will of man, but of God. So that verse right there, uh, it, it gives a really big blow to Armenian theology uh, who believe that, you know, we from our own will can one day wake up and say, you know what, I think I want to become a child of God. That is not biblical Christianity. It is only people who are born of God uh, who are given the right to be named children of God. Now, so children of the people that God chooses to be his, what about the rest of mankind? John says that the unbelievers are called children of the devil. That's not a very popular term. We don't go around calling unbelievers, you're, you know, you're a child of, of Satan, you're a child of the devil. But that, in fact, is what they are. And John doesn't shy away from that. Uh, John, I believe, is the only biblical writer who actually calls unbelievers children of the devil. Now, if you recall, in his, uh, in his gospel, there was an episode where Jesus is having a discussion uh, with a group of Jews, and uh, this is what they said. They answered him, and Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father that your father did. He said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God bears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. One of the things that I love about John, whether it's in his gospel or the epistles or even in uh, the book of Revelation, which he all wrote, is that he's, uh, he's very black and white. There is no middle ground with him. You're either here or you're here. You're either playing Team Jesus or you're Team Devil, and, and that's it. Growing up, most of us are probably taught, you know, uh, we, we have this goodness scale where the the scale where, you know, if you're a good person, you're on this side, bad persons are over here. So we tend to see the most holy people like R.C. Sproul and, you know, Mother Teresa on this side. And way over here we have, like, our in-laws, our, you know, whoever, <coughs> right? And everyone else kind of falls in between there. Well, you know, thank God that that's not how it works. You're either a child of God or, children of, or a child of the devil. Now... <clears throat> where does all this talk about children of God and children of the devil, devil originate? It goes all the way back 
to Genesis 3 at the fall, uh, where Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed, and God pronounces a curse on the serpent. So in Genesis 14:15 we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and your belly... And on your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bru- and he he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So it is here where we see the seed, where God is telling the serpent, "I am going to put enmity between your children and between my children." So if you're a Christian living in this world, uh, depending on where you live in the world, uh, you're going to find the, the word uh, enmity here, by the way, means uh, hostility, right? So being at enmity with someone mean, means that you're being hostile toward them. In some instances, it even means hate. So if you're a Christian living in this world and if you're doing it right, you're going to find yourself in some kind of tension, hostility with people of the of the world of course in some parts of the world especially in the Middle East we see a lot of persecution uh, going on toward Christians because of their faith in Christ uh, out here in the West we don't see much of that um, but even then uh, when you profess to be a Christian and it's known around your peers maybe at work at school there's going to be some type of friction that you feel and that's the hostility uh, or enmity that God says is going to be between you children of God and children of the devil. So let's ask ourselves, why is all this important? Why all this talk about children of God, children of the devil? I'll tell you why. It's because it is of the utmost importance to know whose family you belong to. It's either the family of God or the family of the devil. Um, One of the most common phrases uh, in the New Testament especially is, do not be deceived or do not deceive yourselves. Why do you think that phrase is repeated so often in the New Testament? It's because we tend to deceive ourselves. And we have to be constantly reminded that we need to be, have a sober mind and, re, and evaluate our lives to see if we truly are children of God. I'll give you a, uh, an example here of what Jesus told um, his audience back on the Sermon on the Mount. He told them, on that last day, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, why did, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart me, Depart from me, you workers or those who practice lawlessness. So imagine living your whole life, and on the last day, you find out that you're playing for the wrong team all along. Jesus tells you, depart from me, I never knew you. That phrase right there, um, when when I studied that that little part, is Jesus is not telling these people, you know, I, I'm not calling it, like, who are you? What's your name? He made these people. He knows exactly who they are. So that's not what he's saying. 
the word new, when, when they use the word knew you or know you in the Old Testament, usually that means being intimate with someone, loving someone. For example, when, when it says in Genesis that Adam knew Eve and they conceived a child, it means that they were intimate, right, and they conceived a child. So here, when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, he's basically telling them, I never loved you. I was never intimate with you, which flies right in the face of, of the um, popular theology that says, you know, God loves everyone, Jesus loves everyone. Jesus is telling these people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, you who practice lawlessness. So you don't want to find yourself in that position. Again, um, we tend to deceive ourselves pretty easily, so it's very, very important to know that we truly are children of God. All right, so how do we know who our Father is? Let's look at verse 7 and verse 8 again and see what John has to say. So verse 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now on the surface, this seems pretty simple, right? Those who practice uh, righteousness are of God. Those who practice sin are of the devil. But if you really start to evaluate your life and, and some of the things that we do, you might start to wonder, well, I have this besetting sin in my life that I keep falling into. I'm practicing sin. So am I truly a Christian? You know, and that's where the doubts and the confusion might start to arise because we all, even when we're believers, we still struggle with sin. We all know that. So the second uh, question I want you to ponder and consider is, what is our attitude towards sin when we commit sin? Do you just brush it off or does it gnaw at your conscience until you come to a place of repentance. That's going to make the, the difference between you being a child of God and child of the devil. Uh, because, of course, whether you're a Christian or, or not, you're going to sin. But again, what is your attitude uh, toward the sin? Someone once said that if you don't have a new relationship with sin, you don't have a relationship with Christ. So when you come to be born again, You may not have all the theological understanding that the Bible offers, but one thing you know is that sin has no part in the life of a believer. That's the one thing that you should know when you come into God's kingdom. So it's very important uh, to understand what our attitude is toward, toward our sin. Sin will gnaw away at our conscience until we fall on our knees and repent of our sin. The true Christian always has an inward struggle with sin, whereas the unbeliever has no struggle at all. Uh, So let me give you an example of someone who was born again and yet found the struggle with sin perplexing. Uh, This is the attitude that a true repentant believer has. This was Paul when he wrote to the Romans. He said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what am I doing, I do not understand. For, I, for what I will to do, that I do not practice. But I, what I hate, 
That I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For to will what is, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will, I will not to do that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in the law that evil is present with me. The one who, dw- the one who wills to do is good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, it sounds a little confusing when you read it, but basically what he's saying here is he's struggling. He wants to do what is right, but he cannot bring himself to do it. He finds himself doing that which he hates, and there's a struggle there. That we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but yet at the same time, sin is still present. And so as a believer, you're always going to find yourself in that constant struggle until we, we go home with the Lord and we have our glorified bodies. Until then, we're going to have that constant struggle. If you don't have that constant struggle with sin, then I really urge you to evaluate your life because it might be possible that you are not born of God. You don't want your, again, you do not want to find yourself on that last day Jesus telling you, depart from me, I never knew you. So, when you think about it, when you think about your life and your, your relationship with sin and, and all that, do you conclude with Paul? Do you agree and do you say, oh wretched man that I am? Although the struggle with sin is intense, with Paul we can declare that Jesus will deliver us from, the body, from this body of death. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, as it says in verse 8. And as our substitute, Jesus not only died for us, but he also lived for us as well. Uh, we tend to thank God and thank Jesus for the shed blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary, you know, that he shed his blood for us. Uh, but what we tend to forget is that he also lived for us. He lived a perfect life of obedience, which is what God requires of us. He did it on our behalf, so not only did he die for us, he lived for us, and that's just as equally as important as him shedding his blood on the cross. So if you placed your faith in him and repented of your sin, you can be assured that on that last day you will be counted as one of his own. Jesus put it this way, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him he will be he will gather all the nations and he will separate one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place his sheep on his right and the goats on the left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world so just imagine that i i, I tend to to picture this in my mind a lot when i read it on that last day, there's going to be all these nations 
throughout time, all these nations gathered before God's throne. And what he's going to do is just separate goats and sheep. And he's going to tell the sheep, enter into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's going to be a glorious day for those of us who, who have truly been, been born again. Now, um, if you're like me, uh, you like sports, uh, you like uh, competitive events, uh, one of the acronyms ha- that has recently come into the culture is being called the GOAT. You guys know what, what that means? When someone says, who's the GOAT? No? Okay, so it's an acronym which means greatest of all time. So, for instance, if you're talking basketball and someone says, who's the GOAT, the greatest of all time, most people, if you're in the right mind, you're going to say Michael Jordan, all right? Because that, who that is, the greatest of all time. If you're talking football, you know, or whatever sport, uh, sometimes even in music, you know, who's been the best musician, whatever, who's the GOAT, who's the GOAT, who's the greatest of all time? Well, I'll tell you this, the greatest of all time was not a goat. He was the lamb, and he came to save his people, and he will come again for his bride. Until then, let him find us faithful. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, again, for allowing us to come together this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, thank you for all that you have done for us, especially uh, in saving us from our sin, from the wrath to come, Father. We ask that you would continue uh, to empower us by your spirit to live lives that are worthy of the gospel and pleasing in your sight. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.